Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How's your week gone, Dave? Pretty good. We are in Las Cruces on our way back to Texas from California. Forget how the mountain zone did, time zone did when we were grading time zones, but <laughs> right now it feels a little bit like a D minus because it's about 5.30 in the morning uh, and we had to coordinate our schedule so that uh, we could continue on to Texas and, and uh, not, not have you stay up until 9.30 tonight uh, doing the show. So doing well though, other than that, safely arrived in Las Cruces and on our way back to Canyon Lake, Texas tomorrow. That's great. Yeah, that's definitely our earliest time to record. So we will uh, hear a few sips of coffee, perhaps, as as we go through here. But that's okay. You know, we can we can try out the the morning drive time show format and see how that works for us. Better than snores. So uh, yeah. if, if you hear that from me, uh, <laughs> shout something. Yeah, we'll make some loud noises if necessary. Okay. All right. Well, leading off, there's been a lot of speculation about the end game for COVID in recent weeks with the number of new cases falling by about 75% since January and vaccination, of course, making progress around the country. And in response to that, big headline coming out of Texas, Dave, where you're headed and Mississippi this week, as reported by NBC News, the governors of Texas and Mississippi both announced on Tuesday they would be lifting their state's mask mandates and rolling back many of their COVID-19 health mandates just one day after the CDC warned against complacency in the face of emerging coronavirus variants. And so you see NBC's commentary on that announcement embedded there in their opening paragraph. But the, the piece goes on to quote Governor Abbott, who says COVID has not suddenly disappeared, but state mandates are no longer needed. And of course, it didn't take long for President Biden to respond. You recall that he had said during the campaign that he was going to ask the American people to wear masks for 100 days, the first 100 days of his presidency. As it turns out, there are, uh, looks like 16 states now that have either done away with their mask mandates or never had one. But uh, his response on Wednesday was rather strong. He says, I think it's a big mistake. Look, I hope everybody realizes by now that masks make a big difference. We're on the cusp of being able to fundamentally change the nature of this disease because the way in which we are able to get vaccines, he told reporters. The last thing we need is the Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything is fine. Take off our mask. Forget it. What do you make of Neanderthal thinking, Dave, and President Biden's reaction to all this? Well, the president could be just extending the definition of unity to include all homo sapiens. And the other thing I would say, however, is that it, it assumes, right, that when a governor uh, takes away a mandate or makes a mandate that everyone follows in suit. And uh, certainly there's an effect that leaders and governors and presidents have upon the manners of people, but they are not the makers of manners simply by the edicts that they give. We can go into Texas and uh, be in a store of 400 people, and I'll probably still put on a mask if it looks like there'd be a situation where it might be good to wear a mask, and there'll be other situations where we'll be outside and I won't wear one. And you know what? Uh, I'm a human being, 49 years old, who's probably prudent enough to make that decision for myself. I'm not looking to the governors uh, of for every action. So uh, I think the assumption there that 
everyone's always looking to an expert is is a little bit ridiculous. But it definitely makes its way throughout a lot of the population. We're talking to our in-laws as we're driving here yesterday and the suggestion, please promise me that you'll wear your mask everywhere as if, you know, if you go into Texas, all of a sudden some transformation happens to your mind and you have to take off your mask completely because Governor Abbott has said so. Yeah. I mean, what has Governor Abbott said? He says you don't have to mandate a mask in every business. That's essentially the decree. Businesses can still, in fact, mandate masks, right? You might have a, a small shop and you might decide, well, you know, given the way that my business works, actually, it's important for people to have masks. They tend to be here for longer periods of time and it tends to be a little bit more crowded. And so I'm going to do that. And then somebody who's got a, you know, a big warehouse, right, with a huge volume of air and a small number of people that are coming there for short periods of time might reach the opposite conclusion. And there will still be plenty of people wearing masks in Texas. And, and of course, with a mandate, there's plenty of people not wearing masks. But I, I just think it's, it's a striking revelation into something of the progressive mindset that, that the assumption is the moment a mask mandate is lifted, then all of a sudden masks are gone. Right? And, and what you're really doing is you're actually giving each business, each individual, the opportunity to make judgments based upon circumstances where they probably have more knowledge than the president of the United States about the particular dangers that they face. And it works perfectly into our required reading for today, our last reading on the volume one of de Tocqueville's Democracy in America that deals with the question of what are the chances that the American Union will last and what dangers threaten it. And the subject that Tocqueville takes up at the beginning of this discussion really is sovereignty. And he points out that the national government is sovereign over some things. The states are provincially sovereign over others, but then there's also the sovereignty held by uh, the exercise of judgment of the people. So there are always three entities involved uh, whenever you're working with acts of sovereignty. And the question for, for Tocqueville will, will be, is the national government sovereign enough uh, over a variety of different things that hold the country together uh, that will keep it together, that it will keep it unified? And here he responds that, and note he's writing in the context of the 1830s, that he doubts that this will be the case because the acts of sovereignty held by provincial, state, or local authorities are much more extensive, much more greater, uh, uh, much more part of people's lives than those of the national government. And he references here the framing of the federal constitution on page 349, in light of this, he says, the, the legislators who formed the Constitution of 1789 strove to give the federal power separate existence and preponderant force, but, but they were limited by the very conditions of the problem that they had to resolve. They had not been charged with constituting the government of a unitary people, but with regulating the association of several peoples. And whatever their desires were, they still had in the end to partition the exercise of sovereignty. So here, Tocqueville says that those who are making the Constitution had to deal with the people that aren't quite as united uh, as, as we would assume. Uh, here he takes a different direction on the subject than, say, John Jay in Federalist II, who points out to uh, common mores, common religion, common language. So, so the question for Tocqueville in dealing with this subject of sovereignty is to ask what powers will the national or general government have and be able to exercise and what 
powers will the state governments be able to exercise provincial authority? And they're all different types of acts of sovereignty. There are mixed acts of sovereignty as well, in which you need both the authority of the national government and the state for something to be exercised correctly. But at the end of this um, assessment of national and state power and sovereignty, he suggests that he believes the states moving forward will be able to exercise their sovereignty and the national government in some situations will not, especially if the national government chooses something that is unpopular. Uh, what will happen in that scenario? Well, he'll say that the states, if they disagree with it, could very well um, suggest to their people that the national government not be followed. Uh, and at that point, uh, the republic uh, would be threatened. The union would be threatened uh, by uh, divisions across the board. So uh, one thing that uh, many people probably don't know about you, Matt, is that this, this time period in history, this uh, period between the founding, the framing of the Constitution, uh, and the Civil War is really kind of your uh, wheelhouse that you were uh, dissertation on the generation of leaders in between the founders and Lincoln. And you're dealing with a lot of these issues, um, the constitutionality of the bank, Jacksonian democracy, et cetera. So when you read Tocqueville's assessment of national government and exercise of sovereignty, as opposed to uh, the state exercise of sovereignty, what does Tocqueville have right here what does he have wrong and what might be leading him in the right direction on the subject and, and in the wrong direction on the subject? There's a number of things we could say about that, but I think by and large, his analysis is, is accurate. And I think it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned Federalist Two, where Jay is emphasizing points of unity toward the argument that union is possible, that there's enough unity here to make union realistic. But it's also the case throughout the Federalist that, Madison in particular sees the likely tendency under the constitution still to be toward the states being supreme and the national government struggling to maintain its powers and authorities that this, this long tradition of local government would lead the people whenever there was a controversy between the states and the national government to side with the states. And so rather than fearing consolidation, which is the anti-federalist concern, all the power is going to come to the national government. There's no way that we can survive as states in the context of this new constitution, Madison's still worried about things going the opposite direction, spinning out toward anarchy. And so it's interesting, 40 years later, as the Tocqueville is on the scene, he's still seeing this, right? We, we think about this as, as the worst prediction in the Federalist, right? Because we think about our experience today where the states are weak, the national government is strong. And so whenever I present those essays to students, they think, oh, well, I didn't get that very right. But here we are a generation and a half later and the Tocqueville is still seeing this and still fearing the exact same result. And I think you could follow that all the way up until the time of the Civil War, at least. Right? So there's a long period where the tendency is not toward consolidation, but in the opposite direction. So I think on that, the Tocqueville is, is spot on. Now, what's interesting as you move into volume two of Democracy in America, so there's a disconnect between the historical trajectory of the United States based upon the background of the American people emerging from these very small colonies and then becoming governed by their states. And then finally, only at the end of all this process, adopting a national government, their experience of localism. So there's that history. But on the other hand, there's the philosophical tendencies of democracy toward consolidation. And so what we see in the post-Civil War period, and of course on into the 
progressive era and, and on down to our present day, is this democratic tendency toward consolidation, toward centralization that begins to overwhelm that historical tendency of Americans to favor their local government. Yeah, it's really well said there. And, and I commented last week that I think that the volume one is a historical accounting of democracy in America with philosophical uh, sprinkling here and there. And that volume two is, is a little bit of the reverse. And, but I, I think that what's, what's happening here is he's setting us up for volume two because the transition will be based upon what the national character is. So there is this thing of sovereignty that's based upon history, that's based upon the local exercise of rights, but there's also a national character that's being established. And, and that national character rests upon the direction that Republican institutions are going to take. And it rests likewise upon uh, the commercial greatness uh, of the country. And a lot of that, which is going to be defining the national character, uh, is this movement uh, toward a greater self-interest. And the question will be, is it an enlightened self-interest or is it a self-interest uh, that could be problematic long-term or longer term? Yeah, one of the points that de Tocqueville makes in the reading that you've assigned is how material interest binds the regions of the country together. And this is a point that you find emphasized in early inaugural addresses and in Washington's farewell address in the Federalist as well, where you say, yeah, well, the North and the South have, have complementary economic situations. And so they, 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 they benefit from being connected to each other. And then as the West develops, likewise, there's things the West benefits from, from the North and the South. And so, so while the focus is on material things, then there's a tendency toward maintaining this union, even in the face of these countervailing localist tendencies. But what happens if the moral questions you know, once, once we start to dig a little more deeply, right, why is it the North and the South have different economic situations? Well, we know it's because of slavery, principally, in the South. And while slavery, to use the language of Lincoln, is understood to be on the road to eventual extinction, then the debates of the 1820s and 30s focus primarily on national banks and how much money we should spend on bridges and roads and canals. And those are kind of material debates, and it's more national role, less national role. This is Whigs versus Democrats, and it's kind of boring, frankly, when you go through those debates, at least in, in our own day. It seems like pretty low-stakes stuff. And you know the same kind of debates that we might have over marginal tax rates or something like that. But once it becomes clear, again, to many, and this is maybe in the 1850s, if not before, that slavery is no longer on the road to eventual extinction. And as attempts are made to expand the reach of slavery and therefore to extend the life of slavery, all those economic questions that are, that are relatively unifying or, or allow for just sort of normal kind of give and take and partisan debate and compromise, all those get subsumed by the deeper moral question of the regime. And what Lincoln says is from the time of the founding, there was this central idea that defined the regime, all men are created equal. And while that central idea was acknowledged by all, and of course only imperfectly realized, then you had enough unity to hold the thing together. But once you had a challenge to that central idea, and, and the challenge begins to emerge actually into Tocqueville's day with the democratization of the regime, which begins to introduce ideas of a kind of moral relativism, 
right? All we want to do is just count heads. And regardless of how the, the vote comes out, you know, that, that's good enough for us. That'll define right and wrong. That'll define whatever policies we need. And, and the moral framework of an all men are created equal foundation is something that we can forget about or maybe abandon or even reject in some more extreme cases. So that's, that's kind of where things are going. And while you have this new democratic version of the American regime emerging in the Jacksonian years, you don't see all the consequences of that until you get to the 1840s and 1850s. So we see these two spheres again, the moral, uh, philosophical, <clears throat> religious sphere that is always present in human affairs, and then the material, economic, and political sphere. So it seems relative to the material economic sphere, uh, there's always going to be broad agreement on self-interest, on trade, on commerce, on, on all of those things. But as you mentioned, the problems will arise when there's disagreement about things within the moral or philosophical realm. And what was holding things together initially were the Republican institutions that were framed. You have a constitutional republic. You have a rule of law that comes forth from that that, that organizes activity of the national body and parts of it. But the question is, what will happen to those Republican institutions as we move forward? Will they be enough to hold things together in the moral realm? Uh, and here on page 379, he says that Republicans in the United States prize mores, respect beliefs, recognize rights. They profess the opinion that a people ought to be moral, religious, and moderate to the degree it is free. What one calls a republic in the United States is the tranquil reign of the majority. The majority, after it has had time to recognize itself and to certify its existence, is the common source of its powers. But the majority itself is not all powerful. What happens, Matt, when the majority becomes all powerful? And what happens when it suggests that its opinions do not have to be right, they're just its opinions, and it makes it right? And I think Tocqueville will say here, Republican institutions will be held together if there's a standard by which a majority opinion has to be judged. If that does not happen, uh, then it's just going to be one large free-for-all. You throw moral relativism into the equation, and then you're in a really great bind uh, as a country. It doesn't mean to say that you'll see just you know, one great collapse, uh, because in commercial terms, uh, that expansion, that agitation, uh, that uh, entrepreneurship that is kind of continuing to drive Americans might allow Americans within the material realm, uh, probably will produce within the material realm, this great, expansive, uh, powerful country, but a great, expansive, powerful country that might have lost its essence of moral unity. Uh, so um, he, he closes out the whole volume with this really amazing prediction. I don't think I assigned this, but he says when he looks forward into the 20th century, the two nations that he sees as being most powerful, most likely uh, to be the predominant nations on earth uh, are the United States and Russia. And of course, when we look to the 20th century, uh, what two nations come to the fore, uh, those two uh, countries. Uh, all is not, however, uh, all is not coming up roses for the United States, because even though this expansion that we continue to see in the 20th century, this commercial greatness that is there, will it be held together by Republican institutions? Will it be held together by Republican mores? 
uh, or will it be held together by other things that aren't so good uh, for the health of the Republic? In that passage that you quoted, de Tocqueville talked about the tranquil reign of the majority, which is a, a great phrase. And it really harkens back again to the Federalists where they talk about the cool and deliberate will of the people governing. That, that's the small r Republican principle, when the cool and deliberate will of the people governs. And, and that's embodied in things like constitutions, in, in the settled judgment of a people over the course of time. But Jacksonian politics is not really tranquil. And as you move beyond that point into the 1840s and 50s, it becomes even less tranquil. And the kind of material debates that, that are maybe fun, but low stakes, get pushed to the side. They, they can't keep the attention of the American people when more fundamental matters are in view. And so you have this interesting dynamic of the, of the Lincoln and Stephen Douglas debate where, where Lincoln insists, really the only thing to talk about is, is slavery. And the one thing Douglas says we shouldn't talk about is slavery, right? He wants to push slavery aside and then get back to all those more important questions about a transatlantic railroad and all the ways we can develop economically, internally, and all the rest. And Lincoln says, we, we can't talk about that right now. Those are interesting things. But, but we're, we're talking about the enslavement of a large portion of the American population and the indefinite extension of that to new territories and the indefinite future of that for, for forever, uh, according to the principles of a Stephen Douglas Everyone's going to need to talk about those moral questions when those material questions are, are being subsumed by, by a, a much more important debate. And we, we can't just paper over that. Last thing I'll say on this, Matt, is, is the problem is how the sovereignty of the people is exercised. Is it exercised in a tranquil way, in a prudent way, um, in a Republican way, uh, or is it uh, exercised recklessly? And uh, here he says on 381, in the United States, the dogma of the sovereignty of the people is not an isolated doctrine that is joined neither to the habits nor to the sum of dominant ideas. On the contrary, one can view it as the last link in a chain of opinions that envelops the Anglo-American world as a whole. So to the degree that that remains constant, the United States will be democratic what type of um, democracy rules us, rules over the Republic is, is the question. But then two pages later, he brings up the question of whether or not aristocracy might be reintroduced um, into uh, American mores. And he says the only way that it could uh, is that if inequality were likewise introduced. And, and aristocracy, he writes, in order to last, needs to found inequality in principle to legalize it in advance, to introduce it into the family at the same time that it spreads it over society. All things so strongly repugnant to natural equity that one can obtain them from men only by constraint. So how could you reintroduce aristocracy and change the direction of the Republic? Uh, could you do it in, in a way that Tocqueville hopes for, which is by drawing upon that which is best in the aristocratic past? Or might you have a different type of aristocracy that is introduced into the country, an aristocracy of experts, uh, an aristocracy of those who are credentialed, who've gone to certain universities, who know better than we are. And I think this is kind of an interesting thing. The inequality has been reintroduced into the American Republic, but not in the form that Tocqueville would have hoped to constrain democracy, 
but in a way that plays to the worst aspects of democracy. And I think that's kind of what we're going to go later on in the show. But uh, we are now through one volume of Democracy Markets. We're going to spend eight shows on the first volume, seven shows on the second. We now have to figure out what we're going to do after Tocqueville. And we have to put out a poll for uh, our listeners and take uh, take ideas as to what's the next thinker, what's the next book that we get to after this. But we still have half a book to go as well. Yeah, we've, we've got some thoughts on that. But if you are interested in suggesting some ideas, we'd be glad to hear from you. You can reach us through our email address, democracy in America today at, at gmail.com. Or um, if you can figure out how to connect with us on Instagram, you can do that as well. Democracy in America today there. Well, one contender could be the uh, adjacent reading for today, uh, Machiavelli, uh, not the Prince, but his discourses on Livy. Book one, chapter two is what we're going to be reading from today, uh, titled of the various kinds of government and to which of them the Roman Commonwealth belongs uh, here in this uh, beginning or one of the beginning discussions in the discourses. Machiavelli runs us through something that we should be familiar with as students of political philosophy. What are the different regimes and how do they operate and how do they change? How do they come into being and how do they go out of being? Uh, a, a subject that's, um, that's discussed by Plato in the Republic through Socrates, uh, that's um, corrected in part by Aristotle. So Machiavelli actually takes up the subject of regimes and, and puts his own uh, Machiavellian spin uh, on the topic, I think, which will have an influence upon how modern thinkers think about distinctions between regimes. First thing he tells us when he talks about uh, the differences, say, uh, between the rule of the one for the common good, the rule of the one uh, for one's own interests, the rule of the few and the many for the same, is that these diversities in the form of government spring up among men by chance. So chance is at work in how governments uh, come into being. He says that at the beginning, for example, for observing uh, that uh, when a man wronged his benefactor, hatred was universally felt for the one and sympathy for the other, and that the ungrateful were blamed, while those who showed gratitude were honored and reflecting that the wrongs they saw done to others might be done to themselves. To escape these, they resorted to making laws and fixing punishments against any who should transgress them. And in this way grew the recognition of justice. So justice is not drawn from a clear-sighted, prudent, uh, just understanding of what morality is. Uh, It's born of hatred and anger uh, and an animus towards an individual that that wrongs one. Uh, So it it may uh, play a part uh, in uh, the positing of a new law uh, and the positing of a definition of justice. But at the end of the day, all human affairs, all human regimes are based upon conflicting interests or based upon a war of interests. So uh, he'll say that the six forms of government that are often quoted by others after Aristotle, three that are good, three that are bad. Now, can you really call one set good and one set bad when interest is, is driving all things? How's this link up with our conversation about Tocqueville and Republican institutions and the future of the United States. Tocqueville likewise recognizes the influence of interest and self-interest in, in human affairs, but he suggests that there can be something that you call enlightened self-interest. There can be something that moves closer towards an approximation of what is right, what is moral, and what is humane. And 
this distinction between an enlightened self-interest and that a and a pure self-interest is important because if all you think that politics is is a matter of conflicting interests that are brought up by chance affairs, then really politics becomes a game of might makes right. It becomes a game where you can do anything to defeat your political opponent. It becomes a lot more like the way that many Americans view politics in, in our time. So Tocqueville's uh, painting of what democratic politics could look like and had looked like in the United States and might still look like is one that we ought to hold in front of us if we simply have a Machiavellian picture of the world. A lot of the things that have made us different as a people uh, will be wiped away. I think one of the practical consequences of this, once you collapse the difference between the, the good regimes and the bad regimes, is that you just give way to some overall cynicism. And the cynicism is actually not universally applied, right? So you're, you're universally cynical about your opponent's motives and actions. Now you reserve, of course, the right to be aiming at justice on your own part, but you see everybody else as clearly self-motivated, self-interested. And so, and so therefore you can't treat them as individuals with which you have good faith differences, they can only be enemies that have to be subdued, enemies whose exclusion from the public square is actually a good thing because they're not actually engaging in serious debate toward, toward the good. Let's turn now to our headlines and maybe extend this conversation about the trajectory of contemporary democracy. And if you've been following the news, the House of Representatives, at least, has been quite busy in recent days, passing a number of major bills near the top of the Biden administration's agenda. And one that relates, I think, well to this conversation we've just been having is what was known as HR1 and called the For the People Act, which is meant to deal with a whole variety of questions around uh, elections and how we understand democracy and campaign finance and all the rest. And if you read about this, you know, it's almost impossible to understand the nature of the bill because opinions are so amazingly divided on it. And it's, you know, it's, it's a vast bill with many different facets. And so somebody writes about one aspect of it, somebody writes a different aspect. I just thought, oh, yeah. Matt, I just hold, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just thought, and if you're against it, you must be against the people. And if you're for this, it, it's not that simple. Yeah, no, actually, that is it's as easy as that. That's the good news, right? That's what once you name it the For the People Act, then we know that those that are against it are just like we were saying, right? They're cynical rejectors of the people. They hate democracy. So, yeah, we can easily sort out the good guys and the bad guys, but the arguments are definitely divided on this. So let's look at this. Um, over at the American Prospect, Marsha Brown writes glowingly of the bill, in particular, its rules concerning campaign finance. And you know, you may recall that for the last decade or so, the left has been looking for ways to reimpose campaign finance rules ever since the Citizens United versus FEC Supreme Court ruling that basically said that corporations have First Amendment rights and therefore have the right to participate in political campaigns. And, and therefore, all these restrictions that have been imposed around them had had to fall. And so one of the things they're trying to do is to work around that decision, legislate in ways that, that undercut some of the consequences of that decision. Uh, this bill would include, for example, 
a program that would provide a six to one public funding match for small gifts to campaigns. So if you give up to $200 to a campaign, the government then matches that six to one. Effectively, the campaign gets $1,400 from your $200 donation. And the idea is they want to boost the impact of small donors who aren't as reliant on large donors during the campaign finance cycle. Another provision of this would require any corporation, union, nonprofit, or similar organization that spends more than $10,000 in an election cycle to disclose all donors who gave at least $10,000 during that cycle, unless the donor restricted the use of funds, in other words, said this is not for political purposes. The funds were received in the ordinary course of the organization's business, again, so it was just sort of normal funding. You always give this amount of money every year to support this nonprofit in some general way. Or disclosure would subject the donor to serious threats of harassment or reprisal. Now, interesting that last provision, because we, we know that these kinds of donor lists can provide just those opportunities for canceling people, for, for using them as political weapons, right? What, what does it mean to force the disclosure of those that give, well, $10,000 is a substantial sum, but there's many $10,000 donors to, to nonprofits around the country. And you know we don't have to guess at how this might go because there's actually a case working its way to the Supreme Court right now that involves, interestingly enough, as the, the defendant in the case, uh, Xavier uh, Becerra, who's the nominee of President Biden for Secretary of Health and Human Services, and uh, Dan McLaughlin at National Review, wrote about the case yesterday. Um, the case is Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus uh, Becerra. And basically, it alleges that California violated the First Amendment by demanding that nonprofits disclose their donors to the state attorney general. And, and it goes on to document some of the ways in which that disclosure then, which was supposed to be private, right? It was just for the attorney general's office and not for public disclosure more broadly, but how that nevertheless became public. So this what's called a Schedule B is the document that you submit with the list of donors. Almost 1,800 of those Schedule Bs ended up being posted online. Uh, and, and some of these were for conservative organizations, some were liberal organizations, but almost 1,800 posted online. And the, the database, the internal database, was, was so badly guarded by, by security that they said essentially it was an open door for hackers. Uh, and the Attorney General's office under both uh, Becerra and Kamala Harris, who of course was the previous Attorney General and now obviously Vice President, interpreted the rules to allow disclosure to public record and academic research requests. Right? So there were really bad use of the data, bad protection of the data. And of course, this isn't that surprising, right? Because we, we would expect that there would be individuals with a political interest in exposing their political opponents to all the consequences that would follow from finding out that this person gave this amount of money to this organization. So if that becomes a national mandate and maybe not all the details are identical, what, what is likely to follow? Well, we would expect similar disclosures, whether accidental or, or intentional, to be used in a way that would be prejudicial to the free discussion and debate that's embedded in, in our First Amendment traditions. 
the problem here, and going back to something we were talking about earlier with Tocqueville and the and his desiring and thinking better, the tranquil reign of the majority, when you give the majority the ability through surveillance, right, to name names, does it remain tranquil or does it move in a direction where it's actually uh, making the case or making it more difficult for people to freely associate with one another? So what's, what's important in Republican institutions is that they protect freedom of association freedom of speech, expression, of worship, and, and all the rest. And and here I think you see kind of a, a reign, not quite of terror yet, but it's not tranquility. And it's, and it's trying to eat away uh, or undermine uh, the rightful exercise people should have to associate with one another, to support causes that, that they support. And especially when you're labeling bills for the people, how many more bills are going to come forward in the future where it's for the people's well-being and then there's another organization out there and you're like these thousand dark money individuals you know are against the people's well-being and then what happens to them they do they get canceled uh, do their businesses get hurt and it just it, it I, I think it's a it's a really improper use of of, of power uh, and kind of shows you where our institutions are going and I, I think our institutions ought to be supporting freedom of association rather than uh, trying to make it uh, something that's near criminal. Yeah, I think about this in light of just the theory of of politics that's behind it. So, you know, go back to the most important debate in our entire nation's history. Right, unquestionably, that was the debate over ratification of the Constitution. And so, how was that debate conducted? Well, actually, as we know, it was conducted largely, at least in the public phase, before you got to the ratification conventions, through the use of essays written under pseudonyms. Publius wrote in favor of the Constitution, and the federal farmer and Brutus and Cato wrote against the Constitution. These pseudonyms were so effective that in some cases, we still don't know who the authors are behind those essays. Everyone who engaged in these debates in, in this newspaper style back and forth used a pseudonym. Now, there were some political purposes behind that. Those names were associated with good causes, and so you're trying to associate the overall cause of for or against the Constitution with historical figures that have positive associations. But there was also a desire to maintain a distinction between the person writing the essay and the argument, right? To, to recognize that it's simply a logical fallacy to discount an argument on the basis of, well, of course, that's what Hamilton wrote. We know who Hamilton is. Madison, well, of course, Madison's going to say that. That has nothing to do with the argument. The argument can and should be evaluated based upon its truthfulness. And this is a point that's made actually in the very first Federalist essay, explaining why I'm not going to tell you who I am, but you can evaluate my arguments. You can judge them and you can use your own reason to respond to them as, as you feel led to do that. And so what, what really happens here is we begin to make a, a style of democracy that is, is democracy in that old, bad, Aristotelian sense, right? Where who is it that's that's behind dark money? It's always the rich. It's the corporations, right? There's a class angle to this. It's, it's a poor versus rich kind of dynamic as if the rich or the corporations, the individuals, of course, who make up those corporations have no right to engage in public debate, that there's something unseemly about them 
being involved in debates and, and discussions. And, and what is that? Is that a, is that a one person, one vote principle of democracy, or is that the majority governing for its own sake kind of democracy? Well, the other aspect of this is so, so interesting is the other parts of the bill. So while there's a demand for full disclosure in some parts of what's going on in politics, if you donate money or whatever, with regard to voting, right? Almost no disclosure is, is required, right? You see the, the irony and hypocrisy here that that part of the bill that's dealing with money, everything has to be detailed and exact, but that part that, that's dealing with who a voter is and how they vote and when they can vote and when the vote counts is the exact reverse. There's, there's very little disclosure. You see that, Matt? Yeah. John Fund writing at The Spectator called this bill the worst piece of legislation he'd ever seen in his 40 years of reporting from Washington. And it wasn't because, or at least primarily, the campaign finance side of it, it was because of the rules surrounding voting. And you know, we think about all the, the controversies and the challenges that came out of this last voting cycle. And obviously states were trying to adjust to COVID realities and do their best to figure out how, how do you do a, a safe and fair vote. And I think there were Sincere efforts, at least in some cases, to do that, that that may have led to laws that you wouldn't want to hold on to in the long run, but maybe were necessary temporary accommodations to the conditions. But but what's in this bill is, is the nationalization of some of those worst rules, which created the most opportunity for dishonesty and fraud. And, and now we're going to say, well, let's those things that were perhaps, right, if we're charitable, necessary during a, a pandemic in this particular place and this particular time, now that's going to be forced upon every single state going forward indefinitely, right? So no fault absentee ballots, right? Everyone can have an absentee ballot regardless of whether they have a good cause for that or not. States have to accept absentee ballots up to 10 days after election day have to allow ballot harvesting, right? Where people go around and, and collect ballots and then take them to central locations, which obviously uh, leads to opportunities for undue pressure, say in a nursing home or retirement facility and other efforts that would undermine the security of, of the vote. How about voter IDs? Nope, no voter ID laws that would require a person to present an ID at the point of, of voting. So just like you're saying, Dave, there's this real exactitude when it comes to finance and, and yet a, a very strange lack of interest in ensuring the integrity of the election. And, and anytime you raise these kind of questions, right, the immediate analogy is, oh, so what you really want to do is, is disenfranchise people. And, and there's no appreciation for a need as, as a fundamental principle of one person, one vote to make sure that one person is casting only one vote. I think, and I could be wrong here, but I'm almost certain that, in, and this is a huge thing that's going on right now, you have to present your ID to get vaccinated. You have to present your ID to get vaccinated. Think of where we are now. To get vaccinated, you have to present an ID, but to vote, you don't. What's that say with regard to the integrity of our elections? To get vaccinated, we require an ID, but to vote, you know, and it, it just seems backwards. Just one last point on the on the politics of this. You know, I think about the effort of James Madison after the debate over the Constitution was settled and 
constitution had been ratified. And yet there were people dissatisfied and worried, right? Frankly, worried that their rights were going to be lost under the constitution. And although Madison didn't think that that was likely to be the case, he wasn't, he didn't believe that a, a bill of rights was necessary to protect the rights of individuals. Nevertheless, he introduced a bill of rights into the Congress. And as he did so, he, he talked about the fact that these were liberty-loving people. They'd called them hard names. It had been a rough and tumble debate, but they were liberty-loving people. He, he recognized that in them, and he tried to assuage their concern by, by giving them the thing that they wanted. And so we're coming out of an election where large numbers of Americans have serious doubts, not just about the integrity of the election, but the result. And some of those doubts have been fanned by, by lies and, and, and foolishness and a failure to examine the underlying facts. But look, there were laws that were put in place, laws that were changed, provisions that were adopted that made the integrity of the election insecure. And whatever degree that was taken advantage of may remain forever unknown. But to respond to those kind of concerns, those kind of worries with a bill that institutionalizes them going forward is the exact opposite of the statesmanlike approach that Madison took in promoting the Bill of Rights. And it's the last thing you would do if your actual goal was unity and national healing. All right, let's turn to the great book. We're going to stay political here. Ever since FDR and the dawn of the New Deal, there's been this emphasis on the first hundred days of a presidency. And that gets you with our current calendar to the end of April. But we're going to go biblical here on the Biden presidency and, and do our first check-in at least after 40 days on the job. So we're going to give grade to President Biden so far. A um, little bit of context. So Jim Garrity from National Review and his Tuesday newsletter this week was titled 40 Days of Biden, Not So Centrist, not so competent and kind of gives you the overall thesis mm -hmm. there. Another piece from the AP yesterday, noting that the Democrats during this 40 day period, 40 days plus by the time it's written, had rather unapologetically pushed their legislation through that, that the approach that we, we thought they might take of trying to build some kind of bipartisan consensus just hasn't been adopted yet. And so we were seeing, of course, bills passing the house on very narrow, more or less party line margins, and then going to the Senate, where, of course, the question is whether they can get through with a 50-50 split. Uh, some bills can do that through the reconciliation process. Others face the danger of a filibuster. As you look at the scene so far, Dave, 40 days in, what grade would you give President Biden? Well, if you were grading on the basis of red meat, or I should say full vegan, I, you know, I, I would grade his presidency an A in that he has rolled out everything uh, at a pace that is really amazing. I mean, to, to think that we're judging based upon 40 days rather than 100 days shows you that uh, this group of individuals was ready right from day one to, to get these things out there, uh, to get them through the Congress. If, however, you're giving a grade based upon the result, whether you're actually getting the legislation that, that you want, that's probably more like a C. Uh, and then I'd say, if you're grading upon what the, what the likelihood is that you will do well in 2022, 2024, 
that that to me is a wrong reading of the American public. That's more like a D. So you average up the A, the red meat that you're giving your supporters, uh, the C, which is the likelihood that you'll get results, and the D, the future consequences that it'll have for you. And I think you're somewhere in between a, a D plus and a C minus. And um, I think what's interesting to me is that it it shows and this is going to be, I think, the, the great problem for the Biden administration moving forward, that you really didn't mean what you were stating when you gave your inaugural. That was all about unity. That, that, that this has really nothing to do with unity. And that, that, that um, you, can, you can take a look at Joe Biden, who people thought was going to be a centrist, and you can say that, just, that, wasn't, that wasn't even close to being true, given the record. Yeah, I like your categories, because I think it is striking how much of an effort there has been to check all the progressive boxes. And you think about, of course, beyond the bills that have gone through the House, also the executive orders and the, the ordering of those and, and really the, some of the significant themes of those executive orders. So all those things have, have been pushed forward and, and front-loaded. And, and so you've already got kind of a narrative, which obviously this AP story is picked up on. And you know, as you read the story, they kind of give reasons why Biden would choose this course because there's now some story told on the left that you know Obama really tried hard to reach out to Republicans, but they just wouldn't do it. And so what's the point of even reaching out? They just, you know, they're just always going to want to stop things. So there's kind of this, this excuse that's, that's given for this approach by the Biden administration. But the broader political context is you did talk about unity and you're actually not going to get many of these bills all the way through without getting some people on board or, or at least without putting pressure on individuals to make them make tough votes. It's not even tough votes because you're not, you're not making any effort to compromise. And so it, these, these bills are easily presented as, as progressive democratic bills. And so there's really no pressure on say a Republican in a swing state to join with the Democrats in making sure the legislation gets through. I mean, you haven't, you haven't done anything to suggest you're trying to build a consensus on something. You're just trying to get through your ideas. And so it's actually, I think, to pick up on your point about 2022 and 2024, you could actually put some pressure on those Republicans. Right? You, you could create bills that were more easily designed to reach a broader audience, and then they would be getting those calls, right? Then they would be feeling some pressure either to vote with you, which you would want, or you're giving a good campaign issue to the opponent in 2022 if that person's on the ballot in this upcoming election. But if you don't make the effort and you don't make any kind of bipartisan case for the bill, then you don't get the vote and you don't get the political benefit either. So I, I agree with you. I think, I think it's a C or C minus. All right, well, we wrap up each show with de Tocqueville's crystal ball. Dave, you had a huge week last week, four for four on your Golden Globes picks. Apparently, we need to do more on the movies and television. So I, I was two out of four, which I think was fairly good since I'd seen essentially nothing. But um, you're now 11 and three on, on 2021. We know we, we turned the page from 2020 to 2021, and all of a sudden, your prognosticating skills just went nuts. Vegas Dave, I think, is the new nickname. <laughs> okay. Vegas Dave. So, uh, to keep it going here. Uh, so, what, what's our uh, what's our crystal ball for this week? 
Yeah, well, we've got to do something other than politics. So we're going to wrap up with sports. Now, we, we made fun of the NBA All-Star game a few weeks ago, just the way that no one plays any defense. It's entertaining, but but it's not really basketball. But that is the big event this weekend, NBA All-Star game. And last night, you had the two team captains make their picks. So you had 24 players that were eligible to be chosen. And then LeBron James and Kevin Durant went back and forth making their choices. They were the two leading vote getters. And so that's why they got to make those picks. It was the fourth year in a row. LeBron has had that privilege. The only four years they've, they've used this format and important fact, the three previous years, his team has won. And, you know, you read some of the stories from the quotes around this, you get to see why he's definitely got a plan. He's, he's trying to win this game. Look at the Durant picks. I, it looks to me more like a guy who's picking teammates and friends and, Obviously, there's a lot of great players on both teams because this is the NBA All-Star game. But the question for you, Dave, uh, LeBron's team favored by three and a half points. Over under is 307.5. Who wins and how many points? Well, I'd go back to this uh, assessment of the NBA that it really defense wins in the fourth quarter. If you watch any NBA games, and I've watched a couple recently, I've watched the Celtics play a couple games and just looking at those games, it's just no defense is played up until like the fourth quarter. And then in the fourth quarter, those teams that can turn on the defense, uh, if it's within striking distance, you know, usually win. I think the all-star game will be no different on that front. And, and given that's the case, when you look at the rosters for Team LeBron and Team Durant, the, there are many better defensive players on LeBron's team than on Durant's team. Uh, Rudy Gobert, for example, who was the 11th person picked, is the best defensive player in the league. It's actually, when you look at these rosters and you see how many of them are actually good defensive players, maybe a quarter of these all-stars are good defensive players. If you're using the uh, real plus-minus, a great stat uh, on on the NBA. And um, other other player, Ben Simmons is a great defender. LeBron himself is a, is a great defender. Chris Paul is a great defender. Jalen Brown, Paul George. So uh, at, at the end of the day, in the fourth quarter, uh, if, if, if it's close, you put these good defensive players in there and more than likely LeBron's team uh, takes it. Uh, in terms of uh, over-under, I, I think the score will be, as it always is, out of control up until the fourth quarter. So I've got to go over there. So over and, and LeBron's team. I can't, I'm not a fan of LeBron. I'm sorry. It's just not. So to have to pick LeBron is really just the reality of my wanting to keep my streak going and getting <laughs> to 13 and three. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you on, on the, on the team pick. I think LeBron's team is stronger. And this is what happened last year. Just like you're describing, uh, they started to play some defense. They had this rule in the fourth quarter where you take the third quarter scores, whatever team is ahead, you add 24 points and that's the target you've got to get to. So there's no clock in the fourth quarter. Whenever one team hits that target, then that team wins. And LeBron's team was behind by 11 points entering the fourth quarter last year. And, and they won the game because they clamped down on defense and they scored and you know they, they played real basketball for the last quarter of the game. And so I think just as you're describing that, that could very well happen again this year, probably be a close game entering that fourth quarter. But I think LeBron's team wins. I'm going to go for the upset on the over-under. I think it's going to be an under, uh, not because I expect it to be a low-scoring game. They never are. But with this format of only adding 24 points to the leading team's total, if it's close after three quarters, I think there's a possibility that that keeps it under 
the 307.5. So I think I'm, I'm going to say slightly under on the over under. But, you know, honestly, I'm a little bit afraid to go against you at this point, Dave. You know, you're in such a, a great role that I feel like I'm in a kind of a strange position here after last year doing so well with football. I got to get my mojo back. And I'm not sure that picking the all-star game is going to be the one to go. Well, that's no fear. I think probably by season seven, I might get back to 500, <laughs> given how poorly I did uh, season one. We'll, we'll check in on that next week. But that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget, as we mentioned earlier, we are on Instagram at Democracy in America Today. And you can reach us by email, democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Take care. Talk to you next week.